I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Dr. Yanya Lalich is a professor emerita of sociology at California State University. She has written multiple world-renowned books on cultic studies and is soon to launch the non-profit Lalich Center on Cults and Coercion. Take Back Your Life Recovery offers resources from Dr. Lalich and mental health professionals to help survivors of coercive groups, as well as courses for therapists and social workers to help them understand the issues involved in treatment. I'm a big fan of her work. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to trauma, emotional abuse, and controlling behaviours. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Ever since I first started researching the idea of this podcast, the name Dr. Yanya Lalich has been familiar to me. Former cult members have told me again and again how crucial her work was to their understanding of what they had been through and to their recovery process. For many years now, I've read Dr. Lalich's papers and admired her work from afar, but pinning her down for an interview was a challenge. Although she is retired, Dr. Lalich continues to work incredibly hard on demystifying cults and providing resources for those dealing with the aftermath of their involvement. Needless to say, this was an interview I was willing to wait for. First of all, I do want to say it's such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm really such a huge fan of your work. So thanks so much for, for making the time in your incredibly busy schedule that I know <laughs> is still got so much going on. Uh, thanks, Sarah. I, I know you and I have been trying to do this for a while, but I'm really happy to be here finally. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I wanted to ask you about was actually really back to basics here, I'm afraid, but I wanted to ask you about the word cult itself, because one of the things that really surprised me when I first started doing this work myself a few years ago was how much pushback there was 
around even using the word cult when it seems really clear to me that you're defining something that's quite a specific issue in the use of the word. Right. And there are many people who they, they think that it's a pejorative, which to me it is a pejorative, but that's why I use it. <laughs> and so, I, yeah, I feel that it's really important to name that phenomenon accurately. And I wondered about your thoughts on that because I'm sure it's something you've been dealing with for a long time as well. Oh, I've been fighting that for decades. I think part of the problem is that they're, you know, because of the big cult stories that blew up early on, like Manson, the Manson killings in Jonestown, people saw it as something that had to be incredibly extreme and so extreme that it was like, nothing they would ever think about joining, you know, because they don't look at the trajectory. They just look at the end result. But also the bulk of that comes from within academia and that there are these primarily scholars of religion and a few sociologists around the world, you know, I'd say primarily Italy, England, and then in America, who essentially defend and protect the cults. And they have had literally campaigns to get the media to not use the word cult, to never use the word brainwashing. You know, they literally went around to all the media and gave them lists and said, here's who you want to talk to if something happens. And they tried to keep people like me from testifying in court cases. And I think it's just, I think some of them are simply wrongheaded, but some of them are in cahoots with the cults, and they get perks off of this. And some of them, I guess, think they're protecting freedom of religion, which is ridiculous because not all cults are religious, first of all. And even if they are, they shouldn't be doing criminal things, right? So, but they have had a huge influence. Some of them are quite powerful, and they get their ideas into textbooks like Sociology 101 or Psychology 101 textbooks. And they've just spent decades on a campaign to banish the words. And I and some others have always been fighting that because, like you, I feel like let's call it what it is. We call gangs gangs. Why can't we call cults cults? I mean, there is a historical meaning. There is you know, a long, long understood meaning of what that is and why are we shying away from it? Yep, I agree. And you, I think that this kind of leads into a term that I've heard you use in other interviews before, which is cult apologists. Absolutely. Those are the cult apologists. Yes. Yeah. And I guess I wondered, you sort of mentioned some are maybe wrongheaded and some are actually in cahoots, but I really am finding it hard to understand where that perspective comes from. What is driving that kind of protection of groups that are clearly causing harm as far as I can see? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, the way I see it from my, you know, what, 35 years in this field is if you look back at the early, early literature, like back in the 70s, when in America, we had uh, what was called the Jesus movement. And, you know, there were groups like Children of God and the Jesus people and these people kind of recruiting young hippies and the Moonies. The Unification Church was very big then and uh, the Hare Krishna. And the initial articles that were written by some of these very people actually used the word cult. But then what happened is... Dr. Margaret Singer, who was the kind of preeminent cult expert at the time, who was a Berkeley clinical psychologist, she started, you know, she was asked to be expert witness in trials where people were trying to 
either get their money back where they had given their inheritances or get justice for a child who died, you know, an adult child, various cases. And she was helping these attorneys and these families win hand over fist. And she was a genius in the court, really. And the cults then, I think, decided they better get somebody on their side to counter what Dr. Singer was doing. And so they managed to latch on to a few academics who decided to go that route. And several of them spent their whole careers trashing Dr. Singer, just doing everything they could to keep her out of the courts, to sort of demolish her thoughts and her concepts, and they were successful to some degree. So I think that's the history of it. I think it was greed on the part of certain people and kind of coupled with whatever intellectual knowledge they had. And again, so much of it back then was focused on religion. And of course, here, the courts don't want to touch religion because of the First Amendment. But yeah, I think that's the history of it. And there, and now there have been generations of them, and it's been very tricky because when young people start grad school, I get people contacting me so often, like, what should I study? You know, I want to be in this field. What should I study? Should I do sociology? Should I do psychology? What schools have these programs? And of course, nobody has a program on this. But I always warn them, like, watch out for the cult apologists. If you end up at some university where some guy is going to latch on to you and quote, brainwash you <laughs> into their point of view, we end up losing some of these young scholars who potentially would be a cult critic rather than a cult apologist. So it's been a, it's been a battle. And I, I spent years going to some of those conferences, like the Association for the Sociology of Religion, and there were several others. And I'd give presentations. And I mean, it, it was tough. I mean, I had a colleague then who kind of mentored me in all of that, Benjamin Zablocki, who was wonderful. But that was tough. And I did that for a number of years. And then I thought, I'm just not going to bother with those folks anymore. I'm just going to do my thing and, you know, power to them. And But I have faced them in court or faced the challenges that they get the other sides to put forth. And it's not pretty. I mean, you know, I've, I've been, they tried to keep me out of a court case where the bloody cult leader killed his four-year-old son. Like, who wants to defend that? You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it boggles the mind, really. I wanted to ask you about gender dynamics in cults, which you've done some work on. I read one of your journal articles that was called Dominance and Submission, the Psychosexual Exploitation of Women in Cults. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my own research has shown many of those elements as well, whereby women's sexuality, procreation, marriage and parenting are highly controlled. It's obviously very group dependent, but it does come up a lot and I think that's, you know, we live in a patriarchal society, of course, patriarchal constructs are going to be replicated in cults as well. But it is really difficult to get any kind of comprehensive idea about the numbers of women versus men in cults around the world. We know most cult leaders are men, and many groups have female-dominated followings. And I wondered if you could tell me a bit about your work and the understanding that it's given you about the kind of common demographics in terms of gender. Yeah. Any kind of actual numbers related to cults is so difficult because we don't have a cult census <laughs> and they don't stand up to be counted, you know, so it's difficult. I mean, we can only base numbers on 
things that we can see or people we know who've been in the inner circle who can give us solid information. I mean, again, I don't have statistics, but I think just from observation and the work I'm doing, it is more women than men. And that makes sense given how women are raised in our society to obey authority and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, even though that's improving, it's got a long way to go, which is not to say that men aren't also taken advantage of and abused and abused sexually. I mean, that happens as well. We know that. And equally, there are women cult leaders. I mean, the cult I was in had a woman leader, which I think people to some degree are still kind of surprised by that. Although some of the some of the recent documentaries or whatever that have come out, like, you know, about Teal Swan and Love Has Won. And even before this, there were a number of female cult leaders. The most notorious one in Australia is The Family with Anne Hamilton Byrne. Yes, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been plenty. Part of what's happened, I think, with the female cult leaders is for some reason they've been able to stay below the radar a little bit, and they've been able to avoid the really bad publicity, even though some of them have had very serious abuses and charges. But it it seems that whenever there's been a big, you know, cult story, a big brouhaha, it's one of the cults led by men, you know, got the Branch Davidians or this one or that one. And it seems to be like, it's always the one where the man is the leader, whereas Plenty of the cults led by women had plenty of abuses. Somehow they they weren't caught in the same way. <laughs> and I think they, maybe that's because as a society, they weren't taken as seriously, you know, as the male leaders are. So they kind of got ignored a little bit by authorities or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. I think even in the in the female-led cults that I've looked at, often they still seem to have more of a female following and women, again, are kind of a little bit more likely to stick around. Yeah. I mean, it really depends on the style. You know, I had a female leader and she was so aggressive and domineering and brutish in a way and, you know, screaming and throwing things around and having tantrums and very different from, say, Bonnie Nettles in Heaven's Gate, who was kind of like the sweet little mom figure, at least in public. Our cult actually blew up because our leader was so obnoxious, we couldn't take it anymore. Whereas in Heaven's Gate, they all stuck through it, even after she passed, and believed she was still their leader because she had this more mamby-pamby presentation of self. So it is interesting to just kind of take them apart. I mean, it would be great if someone did a book on just all female cult leaders. And maybe that's your next book. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever do another book, wolf, that was a full-on experience. <laughs> you would know. <laughs> you touched on this briefly, that words like brainwashing and, and mind control are sometimes avoided in these discussions, but coercive control environments certainly influence people to do things that they would otherwise it would be completely against their personal morals and ethics that they would never otherwise do. And having experienced this personally, can you elaborate a little bit on how that works from a cult member perspective? Yeah. The thing about brainwashing is it's such a misunderstood term and it's been so bandied about since the 50s. I mean, the word first came forward during the Red Scare in the United States and you know, what was going on in communist China and blah, blah, blah. And so this 
CIA agent who was posing as a journalist wrote a book called Brainwashing in China and started this whole bugaboo about brainwashing that the CIA picked up on. And, you know, it just got all out of control. But brainwashing is a thing. If you read Robert Lifton's work, and he calls it thought reform, he describes very clearly how it happens, as does Edgar Schein, who wrote Coercive Persuasion around that same time. But, I mean, what it is essentially is kind of a forced or coerced Resocialization, right? They're, they're essentially you're being changed to become this other person. And what I think is hard for people to understand, and this is why I never use the term mind control. I hate that term. I, it's not real. It's not scientific. It's too mechanical. It's, you know, in my opinion, a ridiculous term. Because what happens is so subtle. Because while you are someone in a cult, what happens is you go through essentially an indoctrination program, right? You're going to go through some kind of training and that'll be different in each group. So it may be Bible classes in our group. It was political study. It's whatever. There's almost always some kind of program of indoctrination through studies, through readings, through trainings, through denunciations, public confessions, whatever, right? The purpose of that indoctrination program is to attack yourself, right? And get you to relinquish yourself, no longer trust yourself, and only trust the leader and his minions or his lieutenants who are carrying out his will, right? So as you go through this process and these different manipulations and techniques, you're giving up more and more of yourself. The very clever part is that the cults get you to buy into that. You want to go through that, right? Because you're led to believe that only by going through this self-transformation, this personal change, are you qualified to be on the path to whatever promise that particular cult leader is offering you, right? So in a sense, you are allowing yourself to be brainwashed. Now, you wouldn't think of it that way. You don't think of it that way while you're in the cult. You think you're being changed into this perfect person or ideal person who can be accepted on this path and be loyal to this leader and never do anything to betray that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the longer you're in, the more intense it gets, right? Until essentially you become, once you've internalized all of that, you become like a little microcosm of the cult, right? you are 100% in. Now that doesn't happen to everybody. And that's why some people can leave easier than others. Some people can have easier recovery than others. You know, everybody's different. Every individual is different. So the, the thing that I think what happened with this idea of brainwashing, and part of this is what happened at what we were talking about earlier, where, where the cult apologist helped to really disinform the courts, academia, the public about this process, right? And tried to say that the cult critics like Dr. Singer or myself or whoever, that basically we were saying, oh, these people are just turned into automatons. They're just turned into robots and it's done against their will. And in a sense, it is done against your will or my will when I was in. 
only because I didn't really know what the end result was going to be, right? I knew I needed to change and I knew I needed to get rid of all my petty bourgeois whatevers, but I didn't know it would turn me into a monster, right? Mm -hmm. And that is what happened, right? And so I completely surrendered myself to be this lifetime fighter for the revolution and became a shell of a person who was a terrible person because I was in leadership, right? So people change. They don't always realize what they're changing into, but they, in a sense, willingly do it because it's what's required and it's what they believe in. And so I think that's the really tricky part about understanding what then is the coercive nature of it, right? Because it's still coercive because all of it is playing on your emotions, right? All the, the, you know, they prey on your fears and shame and guilt and love and all of that stuff to trigger you and trigger you and trigger you and poke at you and get you to yield and get you to say more about yourself and get you to confess more, you know, until you're nothing, you're a nobody, although they make you think that's something. <laughs> so it's, it's, I think it's so hard for people on the outside to understand it. And it's, you know, it's part of the question I tried to answer when I did my, my dissertation for my PhD was like, why do people in cults do things that those of us on the outside find incomprehensible, right? Like, why do people take their own lives? Why do they give away their children? Why do they abuse their children horrifically? Because that's what the cult is telling them to do. You know, why do they go rob banks or whatever when they are people who never would have done that in any other circumstance? And then that's where the moral injury comes in. Because afterwards, you're like, who the hell did I become? Mm. You know, how, and what responsibility do I have for the things I did? I did do them, mm. right? I thought they were the right thing to do. Now I know they aren't, but do I go to jail for that? It's a very sticky wicket. Mm. Yeah, that line of responsibility. I don't know if you answered your question, but you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's one that a lot of people get stuck on a lot. It's like, where does that responsibility lie? Because yeah, that person you in this circumstance did do bad things, things that you wouldn't right. otherwise do. But if you weren't in that situation, that wouldn't have happened. So it's such a difficult question, isn't it? Yes. And that's why, I mean, some of the court cases are so difficult because, I mean, on some level, we, we have to hold people accountable for their actions against other people or against institutions or whatever. But on the other hand, I think a lot depends on the type of remorse and understanding that people have after the fact. Mm -hmm. So if you take Nancy Salzman in the Nexium case, who was Keith Ranieri's second in command, I don't believe for a minute that she has any remorse about what she did. I mean, none of that would have happened without her. She was really the genius behind it. You know, he was the front man with the penis, but his penis didn't even work, so whatever. But she tried to act like she really felt bad, but we know that even while she was under house arrest, she was still doing counseling with people, coaching for money, which was against her being under house arrest, right? So if she really felt remorse about who she was and what she was doing, why wasn't she working on that instead of getting money from people for her stupid coaching, right? So it, all of those cases are so difficult. I, I tried to help a woman. This was a black woman in her early 30s who got involved with a very small cult. She had two children. 
long story, but basically at some point the cult leader banished her children to be locked in a car with no food or water in July in Colorado. And the group was like six or seven people. And the mother, of course, felt horrible, but she couldn't do anything. I mean, in her mind, there was nothing she could possibly do to save her children, right? And they died. And when the cult got busted, of course, everybody got arrested. And she was on trial for double murder a double homicide of her two children and was facing life without parole. And of course the cult leader was on trial too and her husband, whatever. But Nashika w was facing life without parole. So I got hired, we tried to get her life with parole. So at least there might be some possibility because there never in any other world would this have happened. And she was so controlled and lived in such fear of this woman who was the leader. Anyway, it didn't work. She got life without parole. It's the saddest story for me. And about six months ago, I got a letter from her, which was just, I mean, I just was in tears. And she wrote and said, after the trial was over, I said to her attorney, her, her defense attorney, I said, make sure she gets my book take back your life. And they got her my book. So, so, so about six months ago, I get a letter. I never thought I'd hear from her. I get a letter from her and she says she wanted to thank me for everything, for my work, everything I do. She has my book. She's read my book a hundred times over. She feels like she understands completely what happened to her. All she wants to do now is help other women who got into situations like her. I, I mean, it was just, the most incredible, and she had like the most positive spirit. I, I was just so blown away. And she sent me this lovely picture of her. I wrote her back and I told her, you know, what I was doing and about some of the courses I was teaching for survivors. And she wrote back again and she said, I've talked with some of the other women here who've been in very similar situations, either cults or, or domestic abuse. And we want to make a proposal to the warden that you'd be able to teach your courses here over Zoom. And we would start out with only four women at a time to make sure it's not too overwhelming. And the prison psychologist would be there. I mean, she had thought it all through. I was just like, oh my God. I mean, I was just sobbing at my desk, like reading this letter. I was like, this is so amazing. And, you know, so I wrote her back and I sent her some stuff she could tell the ward. I mean, I don't know what'll ever happen with it or if they would ever even allow it. But it was like, you know, here's this woman, life without parole. And all she wants to do is help other people, mm -hmm. you know? It just, I don't know, it just was, I don't know, it made it, it made me feel like I'm glad I do what I do and I'll keep doing it until I do croak, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> if I can just help that one person, you know, have a, have some kind of better outlook. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Oh, I know. So yeah. I don't even know what your question was or how we got there. But. <laughs> I, have, I have so many thoughts about that. And even in my own kind of tiny way, it's like I don't think when I started this podcast, I knew that I would still be doing it now. But those few emails that I get through, not even few, those regular emails that I get through from someone mm -hmm. saying, this really helped me to understand what I've been through. Thank yeah. you so much for doing it. That's the thing that has kept yeah. me doing it. I just can't yeah. stop now. It feels like 
so yeah. necessary and it means so much it just means so much it's like the work is actually having some sort of impact that, that that's the most important thing it's especially important because there are so few resources for people yeah yeah and i want to talk about your resources next but i wanted to quickly say when you were talking about this woman she just strikes me as similar to so many of the people I speak to. And I think that that's the nature of the people who speak to me, who reach out, who want to tell their story, is Mm -hmm. they want to use that experience to help other people because that's something really positive that you can do with a a terrible experience like that. I think it also tells me that there are so many wonderful people enmeshed in these groups and they have so much potential to really do great things in society and that's the biggest tragedy about it is all of this wonderful energy that's going funneling into these terrible leaders who are who are just channeling it into lining their own pockets or sexual exploitation or whatever it is that's there yeah I mean that's the thing that you know if there's any common denominator among the people who join cults, it's idealism, right? It's people who want to do good, who want a better world, who want to, you know, whatever. And mm-hmm. and that's what gets betrayed. My first version of my memoir, I was going to call Idealism Betrayed, because that, that's really what it is. So you've got these really, really good people, good, decent, honest people who... Luckily, if they get out and and can, you know, as I see what I've done, it's like turn a bad thing into a good thing. You know, it's like, what what can I take from that that can actually do something and try to keep people away from these charlatans and these con artists and exploiters and pedophiles and abusers and, you know, Mm. because they're having a heyday. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Many people I've spoken to have really struggled to find appropriate support when they've exited a cult and yeah. your name comes up all the time as a source of support, especially in relation to your book, which you already mentioned, Take Back Your Life. I think that's just been huge for so many people. Thank you. And so you mentioned these resources that you've launched that survivors can now access online, and I just wondered if you could tell me a bit more about that initiative and what that's doing. Sure. Well, we're actually going through some changes right now, and so what's happening now is that the company that we have been doing that through is kind of sitting there. <laughs> and instead, I am starting a nonprofit because I felt that given this work and given the need, it would be much more beneficial for us to be a nonprofit organization where we can hopefully get tax deductible donations to help support the work we're doing because it's needed. <laughs> so I'm now starting a nonprofit that'll, that'll be called the Lalich Center on cults and coercion. And then through that will be, it's actually the paperwork's happening as we speak. I have a team of eight or nine people that we've been working together on the courses that we've been doing and stuff. And so we're going to have a, we don't want to call it a retreat because <laughs> that's such a buzzword for so many people, but we're having a big meeting in a couple of weeks where we're going to flush out all of our different programs. So we will, of course, continue with the Zoom recovery courses that we were doing. And then hopefully we'll have this prison program. We'll be continuing to train therapists and social workers, which is really important because, you know, this is part of the issue. People go to a therapist who doesn't have a clue about this and they don't really get help. And and they just thrash around looking for someone and waste a lot of time and money. So we already taught two courses this year that had 20 some people in each one. And it was really great and really helpful. And a lot of those 
therapists have gotten back to us and are consulting with us because they already have some clients. And so we want to do a lot more of that. Of course, it's a piss in the bucket, as they say, because, you know, and we'll be doing other kinds of educational programs and publishing. I'm, I'm revising Take Back Your Life right now and updating it because when I wrote it, like complex PTSD wasn't even talked about back in 94. And so now there's so much about that. So actually, Shelly Rosen, the therapist, is updating the section on the psychotherapy issues and I'm getting some new stories, personal accounts that are more contemporary. So yeah, so we, we'll have a big agenda going and I mean, I think the best thing for, we probably, it, it depends, but I would say we probably won't be doing any more courses until the first of the year so that we can really get organized. And then I think if people, for now, if people go to, to my website, which is yanyalalich.com, We'll have announcements there about the new uh, nonprofit. And hopefully, hopefully within a month or so, the nonprofit will have its own website. But of course, all that takes time. <laughs> so, but it's really exciting because I really see it as a way to leave something behind with all the work that I've been doing these years. And, and I have a really great team of people who are just so skilled, and, and all of them are survivors. And, you know, so I, I feel really good about it. So I'm hoping I can stay alive long enough to, to see it really grow and blossom and have to try to stay healthy. <laughs> so I'm sure you can. And that link will be in the show notes for everyone to be able to click through and access for sure. And I'm sure as soon as more details come to hand, I'll definitely share yeah. those as well. And, and we have had, you know, we've had people in our courses from many different countries, from Australia, from England, from Sweden, from Portugal, from Spain. I mean, it's just been amazing. And we always have to work out these time differences, but somehow they make it. And we also have like a discussion group that is ongoing with, we don't call it a support group. We call it a discussion group with people who've been in our courses and they just get together every other week and just talk about whatever they're dealing with and help each other. And so the international character of it is really wonderful. And luckily we've been able to work out the time difference for enough people. I know it's difficult. Mm. Mm. Like you're oh, already, yeah. you're already tomorrow, right? <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm on Saturday. <laughs> you're way ahead of us. <laughs> I, I'm always interested in the question of how much different cult leaders really believe in what they mm. teach or preach, and how much is manipulation to get what they want. And mm -hmm. you've said in the past that cults always have a hidden agenda, and so. I wondered if you had an impression of whether, do you feel that the leader's level of delusion varies a lot per group or is there usually someone at the top who is quite intentional in their manipulation and exploitation? I believe that a huge percentage of the of cult leaders are not delusional. They know what they're doing. It's very deliberate. They're narcissists. They're often malignant narcissists, which means they're particularly sadistic or evil, you know, have a bit of psychopathology. I think that sometimes some of them are straight out con artists, you know, from the get go. I think a few of them probably had some kind of, I guess what I would call a brief psychotic episode where they thought Jesus came down and spoke to them or they were lifted up in a UFO or, you know, whatever. And then from that, they were like, oh, now I'm going to go tell the world about this. 
I think that's a that's really a minority. I think most of them know exactly what they're doing. And I think that what happens is after time, because they create these organizations that have no checks and balances, that they're allowed to dominate without any controls so that after a certain amount, you know, and then they keep pushing the envelope like Keith Raniere did so that I think some of them after a time do become delusional and do actually think that they are the be all and end all or, or that their narcissism is, you know, so strong that they truly think they're God or whatever. I don't think they start out that way. And I mean, they all start out thinking they're a big shot with some kind of special whatever, but it's really mm -hmm. a con, I think. And, and then, you know, if you have someone like Jim Jones, who started, who was doing so many drugs, I mean, he was completely drug addled by the end. So what is that? You know, that wasn't who he was in the beginning, but he was a con artist from the beginning. We, we know those faith healings and everything were completely bogus. So it's, it's really important, I think, when studying these people or these groups is you have to look at the whole trajectory of the, of the cult or of the cult leader's life. You know, so if you go back, you look back at, at Jim Jones's life or David Koresh's life or, or Keith Raniere's life and like, oh yeah, yeah, he was someone who, who loved to kill cats when he was a kid, or he was always a bully with all his, like his friends in grade school and elementary school. You know, it's like, they have those signs early on that they're going to be that narcissistic personality or sadistic or whatever. And so by just looking at who they are, say at the end, like let's look at Marshall Applewhite as that bald headed bug eyed guy, you know, and let's base everything on that. That's not who he was, right? That's who he was in the end, but let's look at how it started and, and how handsome he was when he was initially recruiting and, and how he got duped by her. And, you know, so you, ha you have to look deeply into the whole story, mm. but in general, no, they are not nice people. Mm. Mm. And that's what I think that's, you know, sometimes for survivors, the hardest thing is to let go of the leader, right? Cause they, they think they had some kind of peak experience or they can't imagine leader did X, Y, Z, or it must've been a moment because we can't imagine that people can be that evil. We can't imagine that people can actually do those things because we, we would never do those things. So it's really hard sometimes to accept that this guy is just a narcissistic asshole and he's nasty and he's taken advantage of all of us. You know, it's, it's hard to accept and because they are, that's who they are and they're, they're not like us. Their brains are different. They're not like us. They don't change. Mm -hmm. I hadn't talked about this at all until the book and I put it in the book because I had a personal experience with a con artist and it, you know, it was a, a family relative of my partner, Joe, and the experience I think was similar in that it really took us both quite some time to, to recognise what had actually happened. We wanted to believe that the best mm -hmm. of her and to come around to understand what she'd actually been doing in, in ripping off all of these people who were family and friends who she'd known for decades was an incredibly hard thing to do. So I think that experience really allowed me to identify with that feeling quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to accept who those people are. And then it's also hard to accept we've been duped. You know, we like to think we're smarter than that. So, you know, there's both sides to it. Yeah. And I think that that's just become such a key kind of like aim of this podcast is to really 
hammer home as much as possible that this is not about people being idiots. This is not about people being foolish. This is a thing that can happen to anybody, you know, and it happens to a lot of smart, smart people. And it's not, that's such a, it's a self-protection mechanism to, to want to think that it couldn't happen to you. But that's right. a victim-blaming mentality as well that's not putting the responsibility in the hands of the person that it belongs to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By the time this this interview comes out, I will have published the first episode of the season five of the podcast, which was with a woman called Lynn Short who was in a group called the New Gnostic Society set up by Samael Anvior. I don't know if you're familiar with him. No, I don't know that one, I don't think. It's really, yeah, it's interesting because he passed away in 1977 and he'd set up his his cult, his belief system, but there was really no longer a leader around. But the system, the belief system was set up in such a way that Lynn Short, her experience of it was entirely everything that you spoke about in your kind of, you know, exploring that sort of thought reform area, undermining all of her sense of self, you know, becoming this person for whom basically suffering (laughs) was the main aim it was you were doing it right if you were suffering all of that kind of thing and I just I Mm. yeah I'm sure you've come across this before but I was quite I don't know not surprised but in a way surprised to to find a group where the leader is no longer there to do all of the controlling all of the coercive control but the system had been set up so well that people were almost doing this to themselves well you know a a lot of in many cases, the leader dies, right? I mean, Rajneesh died, and there's still hundreds of thousands of followers of him, which is disgusting. <laughs> and Jehovah's Witnesses, obviously, the original leaders are gone, or the Mormons. or So typically what happens is you have, if you think of the leader as the, quote, charismatic leader, which that in itself is a needs to be discussed, but... Essentially, it's you consider this person to be charismatic, which means they have power over you and you believe everything they say. They then usually will set up a structure so that they will either literally name someone to take over after they die, or sometimes perhaps they die suddenly. But then the people who've been in leadership have what we call charisma by proxy. They, they are seen as carrying out the orders of the leader or the worldview of the leader. And so when I was in leadership in my group, I was respected because I had been put into leadership. You know, I didn't just stand up and say I'm a leader, right? I was granted that by the higher up. So in this case, if there is no one who is kind of calling the shots and you have a bunch of people still following this system of belief, that's pretty powerful, but they they must they have a way that they hold each other accountable, I presume. Yeah, they must be holding people accountable in order to adhere to the belief system in the way that they do. The belief system itself seems to be really undermining people's ego and sense of self and all of those things, and so it sounded mm. really dangerous in that sense, I suppose. So, I mean, there there are so many things, and obviously the work that you're doing is a big part of it, but... I feel like you and I are kind of dealing with a lot of the the symptoms and not the disease, right? And I wondered if you have any thoughts on what more society and institutions and government could be doing to stop these groups from causing so much harm. Oh, it's really difficult because at least here in America, it's hard to even like go into a school and give a presentation about this 
because they think you're going to offend someone's religion, right? Because everybody here is so freaked out about the First Amendment. And I always tell them, I can talk about cults for days without mentioning religion, you know, <laughs> just give me a chance. <laughs> but, you know, I think I think these podcasts are doing a terrific job, really, because there's so many and there's so many people coming out now with their stories and so many different kinds of stories and different kinds of people. I think that's really helping educate. And some of the media stuff that's come out have been quite good. They're not, I think those, some of the documentaries and series are, are not quite as sensational as they were, you know, say 10 years ago. They're a little more substantive. I don't know, you know, government, I'm not about Big Brother getting into our lives that much, but I think the main thing is if people are aware of criminal activity and they have evidence of criminal activity, then try to get the authorities involved. I mean, and that's not easy. I mean, what it took, what, two years to get the FBI to even move on the Keith Raniere Nexium case? You know, I mean, I've got a couple cases going with the FBI where I don't know whether it's COVID and they're backed up or what it, but things move very, very slowly, you know. And in one case, the, the, the former members of that group went with binders upon binders of evidence of the eight different kinds of crimes and still nothing's happened. So it's really difficult on that level. Mm -hmm. I think it's really just on a kind of one-to-one -one and whatever we can do in the educational system in whatever country, which is tough. And I think just doing a lot of public public speaking, doing mm -hmm. what you're doing and doing what everybody's doing. I mean, it's it's hard because it's everywhere. It's so it's so ingrained in our all of our society, at least Western societies right now, all the new age thinking and all the nonsense, I mean, and all the conspiracy theories, it's just rampant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, so many of the people I speak to, it's kind of like they come out of a group often that they were born into, so they never chose oh, yeah. to join. It would have been very difficult for any kind of education to have reached them because they never made that choice. And they come out and even if they go to a police station and talk to the police, there's actually not a crime that's being committed because it's not one of these big sensationalist groups where, you know, some huge thing has happened. It's just a group that has right. controlled their life in so many ways and they are they are traumatised and they have the, all of this trauma to deal with but there has been right. no crime committed and it just feels like what can be done about that? Almost nothing. I know, I know. There's no social services for people coming out of cults. It's just tragic. And, you know, especially the kids who come out usually as like late adolescents or young adults, whatever, or even older adults. And so many of them, they don't know anything about how to get an education or how to get a and Some of them don't even know their real names. You know, they don't have birth certificates. I mean, it's just tragic. And, and they end up on the streets and they end up couch surfing and they end up on drugs. And I mean, it's just there's so many suicides. It just breaks my heart. I mean, it, it really is a public health issue and it's completely ignored, completely ignored. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I guess that's the thing that I think as well is that if as a society we, we've decided that we are going to let these groups continue to do what they're doing, then the very least we could do is provide for those who come out and really need a lot of support, right? Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> I know that's a lot of what you're trying to do, which is which is really yeah. fantastic. So in the work that I've been doing in this area, I just hope to continue to build on the work that people like yourself and Dr. Alexandra Stein and all of these other people have been yeah, doing. She's brilliant. Yeah, she's fantastic. You've been doing this for, for so many years, but 
honestly, it, it worries me that today I still <laughs> seem to be trying to shine a light on issues that you and others identified such a long time ago and have been trying to kind of yell to the rooftops yeah. about for such a long time. And, I mean, looking back over on all the work you've done, do you see kind of positive movement it the issue seems worse than ever I know I know everything you've been doing is fantastic but I just is there is there is there hope of progress here you know I I do think there I do think there is some positive movement I mean I think that I think that there are so many survivors out there right now and people are finding each other and helping each other I think people like you and Sarah Edmondson and all the podcasters, some of whom have cult experiences and some didn't. And I think that's that's phenomenal. I think we've had some really important court cases that have set some precedents. Certainly the Nexium case that he got charged on, on seven federal criminal charges. That was very big. And I imagine a bunch of cult leaders were quaking in their boots. And we've got, well, he, the other big one would have been the big one is the, the the pastor from La Luz del Mundo, which was the church in Los Angeles that that was operating very much like Keith Raniere. He was having sex with all the young girls, and he had women grooming them and the whole bit. But he pled guilty, so there won't be a trial. And he got a really weak sentence, I thought. But there have been a few other cases where they've been held accountable and they're, they've been in prison. And if we can get them on, on these cases of like sex trafficking and labor trafficking, which are federal charges, at least here in our country, and that's almost every cult has labor trafficking. I mean, I worked for nothing for 10 years, you know, <laughs> so we've all got that. But like I said earlier, it's so hard to get the evidence and get the authorities to move. But I think the fact that a few countries have passed these laws now about coercion, I'm hoping that'll happen here in America. I mean, that's such an important step because I hear over and over, well, she's an adult. If she wants to give him a half a million dollars, that's fine. You know, it's like you just want to like choke. So I think there has been progress. It's certainly a lot slower than one would hope. But if we think about domestic violence and how many decades before we even had women's shelters and were able to train the police to respond in a different way and things like that. I'm hoping we can keep moving forward with this. It's a, it's a battle. It's a big battle. I totally agree. And the comparison with domestic abuse is, is to me quite a, a strong one because it's sort of that same coercive control dynamic is in place in those domestic abuse situations that is in place mm -hmm. cult, just with more people. So it's interesting to see the laws around coercive control that at the moment they right. seem to be quite limited to that one-on-one -on -one intimate yes. relationship. But as soon as we can recognise that this pattern of behaviour is a crime, surely the next step will be to see that it's still a crime when it's happening to more people, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's our mm. hope. And getting it recognised over here, which I think will be, a, it'll probably happen on a state-by-state -state basis, I, I would expect. But yeah, that's that's certainly a dream for the future. Mm. Mm. Slow, slow progress, but still progress. And I think that's a great example with domestic abuse, because that has taken such a long time to for people to be able to recognize and to stop asking that question. Why didn't she just leave? Yeah, why didn't she leave? Yeah, hello. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, well, because he just killed her dog and he'll probably kill her children and she's emaciated and terrified. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She should have just walked out the door. Mm. And that's, you know, I'm sure you know, that's what all, that's what many, many cult survivors get that. Well, why didn't you just leave? No one was holding a gun to your head. Mm-hmm. Mm. Metaphorically, they were, though. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's almost like we're just a few steps behind on this front. So <laughs> hopefully yeah. we keep pushing and we get there in the end. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And you're helping doing my tidy bit from this corner of the world. I think that's I think that's covered all of the questions that I, I, I have so many things I'd want to hear your thoughts about, but those are the those are the ones for the moment. But is there anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about? No, I think no. I think we've covered a lot and you know, we can certainly do this again sometime. It'll probably take a year to organize but <laughs> It's, yeah, it's absolutely worth the wait. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak with you. And, oh, well, thanks. Yeah, and I'm happy to speak with you. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The link's in the show notes. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and produced by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. A very special thanks to Dr. Yanya Lalich for speaking with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia at yanyalalich.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cosy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio-Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. Thanks for joining me, and hope to catch you again next episode.